Who's this? Oh, you're an entrepreneur? Oh, you're a real estate investor. Oh, you're trying to learn from those who did it. Well, come into the lab then. Put your white coat on, gloves on, notepad, and let's build y'all. Real estate experiment, what is happening, y'all? Today, I have the pleasure of having Ryan Gibson here in a lab with me, who's a true practitioner who's currently right now in Vegas because you're always doing your due diligence and you're learning, you're constantly learning and making sure you're staying ahead of the pack. So I do appreciate that. Uh, but today, you are representing the uh, Spartan Investment Group, which you are actually a co-founder of and currently the uh, chief investment uh, officer. And I'm interested because uh, with that comes a lot of responsibility and you and I were just talking about how much money you're raising offline, you know, even before we got there. And you're always just talking about growth and hiring and, and, and getting the best for your investors. So first of all, without further ado, welcome to the lab, Ryan. How's it going? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, so <laughs> speaking of levels of different, uh, you know, niches and, and expertise, I mean, you know, I look at here, I got to ask you, when I look at Spartan Investment Group, which one did you guys first tackle? Because I look at your portfolio and I, you know, I know that recently, and, and I know you were telling me about this offline with the self-storage is definitely one sector that you're in as far as the asset type. But as far as value add, development, what would you say right now makes up most of your portfolio for you and your investors uh, coming into right now, if you're dialing in, it's Q4 2021. What makes up most of your portfolio? Yeah, I would I would say it's about 75% value added and about 25% development. And you know, depends on how you define development, but we are building facilities from the ground up, as we say, trees to keys. We're also buying facilities that exist that have a development component of adding additional units. Some properties don't have that type of development potential, but most of them do. So I would say that, you know, if you're talking about raw land development, purely ground up from the scratch, you know, I would say only about 5% of our portfolio is that. But when you mix on the 3000 units that we have in the pipeline for construction, I would say it's about a 25, 75% breakup. So we love the value add because we can buy facilities that have been poorly managed and add value to them through our operations and increase cash flow and value of the property. Love it. Love it. So we're going to get that in a second, right? We're going to get a little dive a little bit deeper, but I got to give you the introduction that you deserve because I think you have a very unique background, right? Having a, you know, taking it back a step back, the management, the marketing, the advertising background, and then also commercial pilot. Did I get that right? Yeah. Like how does that, you know, in a lab, we talk about it being a lab where we're really stirring the pot and putting in all these, ingredients how did that mold rank today did, did you build on one of those how, how did you fall into the the literally the invest investor relations that you're in right now with spartans how did that come do you want to kind of help us put the pieces of the puzzle together yeah i think that one thing that you know talking about ingredients you know one thing that we all do in real estate is we have due diligence checklists and processes that we have to go through to keep ourselves safe from losing capital I had that same experience in the airlines with using checklists and having a structured environment to where we do things to keep our passengers safe. And I think a lot of that is applicable to keeping our investors safe with preservation of their capital and uh, earning a return. So when we look at 
real estate as a whole, it can be systematized and processed. And that's really helped our growth. The other part is, you know, I am, I co-founded the, comp- the company with uh, Scott Lewis, our CEO, and he comes from the same type of environment. He comes from an environment in the military where everything is, uh, you do it right or you die. So it's uh, kind of one of those uh, structures where we take due diligence very seriously. And in fact, if your listeners want to download our 750 point due diligence checklist, if you go to our website, you, your listeners can download it for free. And we run that checklist on every single investment that we make. And, you know, my experience as an airline pilot in that background has really helped kind of bring some of the processes and procedures into our business today. Wow. So, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because Ryan, I believe checklist does literally come from the airline industry, if I'm correct. Am I right? I think so. The, the story goes, there was two. Or you guys Boeing claimed pilots. it at least. <laughs> yeah. There, I think really the, the you know, everybody kind of remembers in aviation um, many years ago, there was two world-class Boeing test pilots that were basically the aces of the sky. And they did, they took off from a runway on a test flight and there were no checklists. Mm. And these guys were the best. They were the cream of the crop pilots for Boeing. And they forgot the most basic thing, which was to remove what's called an aileron gust lock from the controls. It's kind of like trying to drive your car down the road with a parking brake on almost. And they couldn't, they couldn't rotate at the end of the runway and they crashed and they died. And I think that's what really started checklist usage is even the most basic things you've got to get onto a checklist because we're people before we're investors and we're prone to make mistakes. And even the best real estate investors that say, I don't need, I don't need a checklist. I don't need to have these things documented or processed are going to make mistakes because of complacency. And that's really what's been beaten into my head as an airline pilot is you don't get complacent. You always read the checklist. You always follow the procedures and we've built those processes inside of Spartan uh, to keep to get to keep us safe. I, I I love that because I always say that you know you are a reflection of your business, and uh, I, I love how you said uh, you do it right or you die. I mean that's really <laughs> the reality, and and I like that approach. And like I said, it always says a lot to me when I you know I always go back to the source, right? Who is the leader in the company? You know, what culture, what message are you sending and how that's transcending into your, your, your company and your business. And obviously, I would love to have somebody who knows how to fly a plane, who knows how to follow a checklist to apply the same in my investments. So you got my vote there, Ryan. But now as far as transitioning into what you guys have been able to build uh, offline, we're talking about it. You've raised uh, uh, over 100, is it 110 million in, in, in capital and, and again, being able to deploy that in, into your portfolios. So which one comes first? I know you talk about value add being, uh, you know, the, the I guess that, that, that foundation of 75%. Um, as far as for you, though, I'm curious, transitioning in from the airlines, is this something that you were just doing simultaneously? Because I think this helps give people context as to, hey, you know, if I want to try something in my own lab, what does it look like? Do I have to go all in or do I start maybe as an LP and, and how, how did that, how did that transition happen for you? Yeah. So I will say that you don't need to go all in, but your, your mental state and the effort that you put into what you do has to be all in. So, you know, if you're kind of working a job and you don't want to resign that position like I did, and you know, you sort of have that W2 while you're building a company, 
you still have to be all in in what you're doing. You have to be completely bought in and to the mission, vision, values of the of the thing that you you know that that you declare for your company. And but just know that you know you can't dedicate all your time to it. But that the time that you do is 100% focused on the right things, and it helps you become more efficient. So I think that's really where I benefited from partnering with Scott because Scott's got a background in the military, leading hundreds of troops. I mean, you talk about getting leadership experience and skills, you know, this doesn't have to be something you do on your own. You can find partners that bring skill sets that you don't have that are very complementary to making an organization grow. So one thing that we really focused on is not doing deals. And we actually, in the beginning, did very few deals. If you look like, if you look at our track record in 20, we started the company in 2013, only did one deal 2014, I think we were looking for deals. 2015, maybe two or three deals. 2016, I think we did one project in 2016. We did absolutely no projects in 2017. Then all of a sudden, 2018, we do three storage facilities. 2019, you see nine properties come on. In 2020, you'll see 11 projects be added. And in this year alone, we'll add 35 self-storage facilities to our portfolio. And everybody's like, wow, where did you come from? How are you keeping up with all this growth? And you really have to look back and you have to say, what were the first things that we were focused on? And it wasn't doing a bunch of deals. It wasn't chasing all this stuff around town or being distracted with different asset classes. It was, how do we build the core of the organization? How do we build the operating system for the company, the culture, the mission, vision, values? How are we going to grow this strategically and have that bigger view of building a business versus just doing deals and then reacting with processes. And so I think now, you know, we're hiring a new employee every week. We're on the Inc 500 fastest growing real estate companies in the United States. We actually rank number five for the fastest growing real estate companies. And it's because we have that core operating system that we put in place, that core strategic plan that we put in place. And by the way, if you want a copy of our strategic plan, we also make that available on our website. And I think what you'll see is that, you know, we put together the strategic goals and objectives, and that's really what's helped us thrive. Okay. I love that. One of my favorite books is, oh, there it is. <laughs> this is right here. The compound effect. I heard some compounding effect there because I'm looking at this trajectory and I'm hearing 2013, one, two, one, zero, three, nine, eleven. Um, that's fascinating. I love how you said, I mean, you're, you're essentially building a foundation. Now, I want to go there for a second, Ryan, because I think people build foundations very differently. And what looks like you may be building a foundation might look different from the other person, right? There's a person who's doing analysis paralysis and wants everything to be perfect. And that's, they don't have this kind of compound effect. It just nothing ever happens. Then there's the other person also who says, you know what, uh, I'm going to just, just, uh, what is it? Shoot, fire, aim, shoot. Right. I hate that. That's how people die. Yeah. And it's so funny. You're so wired to be like, Oof, I hate that right away. So clearly you had something in between. You found that sweet spot. What yeah. does that look like? Actually, because yeah, I, I hear the core mission values, et cetera. Okay. What does that look like? Let's go quarterly. Right. Is it, you know, getting this, it, it, tell me, I don't even want to guess. I, I'm just yeah. very curious to how that really looks like. Yeah. So I, I would say that Education for effective action is important. You need to get educated. You, you know, I, I hear the ready, fire, aim. 
Um, and, and I get it because you're trying to hit close to the target. Okay, that didn't quite work. Move a little bit left, move a little bit up and down. I get that. So I just hear that a lot. And then I hear people doing bad deals. And then now they're unpacking that bad deal for the next five years. And now they can't do anything with their company because they ready fired aim and they hit the wrong thing. And now, you know, it's like I tell our acquisitions team, our acquisition, we have five full-time acquisitions people. All they do is look at deals. They bring the deals to the um, executive committee. We do deal review. We kind of approve or disapprove deals that we move forward with. It kind of works like a credit committee. And we always, you know, the acquisition team is very good and they don't need to hear this anymore, but in the early days, you know, of bringing them on, it was like, you guys deal with this deal for three months, right? You, you deal with this acquisition for three months, then we have to deal with it for five years, right? And so you can go ready, fire, aim and get a deal in your portfolio, but then you have to deal with it, good, bad, or indifferent for the next five years. So I like to say education for effective action. I really like that phrase because go get educated, learn as much as you can about the space, take massive action on your education, but also take massive action in putting the right things in place to find the right deal. And I think it's, it's, it's tough, especially, you know, when you're first getting started and you're like, man, I really just want to learn. And then it's like, learn, 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 learn. I mean, you don't want to ready, ready, aim, 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 and never pull the trigger, but you also don't want to just start pulling the trigger. And then you end up with a portfolio of garbage that now you lose your investor reputation on, you lose your money on, and worse, you lose your time on because you're spending all this uh, effort going through a, a bad opportunity. So I think it's a, it's a delicate balance between getting yourself educated, but also doing uh, things that allow you to take massive action. And I think if I, if you said, Hey, what's the difference between the guys doing analysis paralysis and the guys, you know, just going out and doing whatever ready, aim, fire, or ready, fire, aim. Um, I think, I think the difference is, is just people that don't take action. And what I mean is don't take action at the closing table, but just take action and putting what you learn into place and then constantly fine tuning it. Okay. Okay. Thank you. I really appreciate you touching on and putting it re into real perspective, the five-year kind of commitment and marriage. That's really what it is. And, and either you're, you know, excuse the analogy, either you're getting in bed with something that is, 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 is going to be, is going to cause problem for the next five years or getting pregnant, getting pregnant with the deal is what we say. Uh, thank you. All right. He's in <laughs> Vegas. That's how you know, Ryan's in Vegas. So he knows. So this is what we're talking about. So Ryan, this is interesting though. I, I want to give, I like when we're in a lab, I like to give uh, a little bit of tactical advice. So you said setting the right things in place. I don't expect you to give, I know people can go to the core strategic plan on your website, which we'll make sure we plug at the end of this show. But if you were to just sprinkle some wisdom, what is that? What does that actually look like? Because there's an analysis process, et cetera. Okay, get your education, get things right. What are those things that need to lay that foundation that clearly you guys have laid that you think is imperative for investors building that foundation like the the way you've done? Go learn as much as you can about the real estate industry. I think a lot of people think about flipping houses or doing multifamily learn about all the different asset class types and figure out where you fit in and can add the most value to the industry. Once you kind of pick your thesis or what you want to go after, find the top players in that market. There's a, there's a really good chance that you can get in front of people that are doing great things in the industry 
and they'll give you the time. And, you know, it's, it's not something where you get coffee with somebody and say, Hey, so how did you get started? It's like, no, you can do research on that person. You can learn how they got started. And then you learn how to ask great questions when mm. you're in front of that person, right. And Love get that. the information out of them that helps you understand and contextualize a space. So like for us, what we did is we said, we like self-storage because the last two recessions, it was the least foreclosed upon asset class during COVID. As an example, rents were up 12.7% annualized um, during COVID no eviction moratoriums. We love self-storage, right? But we knew nothing about it. So what we did was we said, how can we be educated in a way that we can take effective action in the space? So we looked at the self-storage association, the, um, that's where I'm at today. Uh, we looked at the uh, Inside Self-Storage Conference. We traveled the country. We went to these conferences. We learned as much as we can. And we found the people in the space that were making the biggest moves. And you can see if these people, they actually attend these conferences and you can get in front of them and say, hey, I want to take you out for a really nice steak dinner the night before a conference. And I want to treat you to dinner. And I want, if you don't mind, I'd like to just get to know you more, you know, and, you know, you learn that you learn that art of kind of getting in front of somebody and, and becoming, you know, a good relationship with them and showing them that you're serious, you know, and um, you know, I think just asking great questions is a good one and just getting in front of people, getting educated. And then, um, you know, not being afraid to just pull the trigger on, on your learning. You know, we, we, we bought a self-storage facility that actually came with a car wash a couple of years ago. We knew nothing about car washes. So I have this picture of a stack of, of books that our entire team read in a weekend, you know, four books on car washes. And it was like, hey, we got, we're going to own this thing. We got to figure out how to run it. We got to figure out everything there is to, to do about it. So and then we huddled as a team and all talked about what we learned um, so that we could take action on being successful with the car wash. We ultimately sold it for a nice profit and uh, it really worked out nice. So I would say anything that you do in the space, um, kind of figure out where you want to fit into the space and then go all in on educating yourself and how it works. Mm. And don't, you know, one, one last thing I want to add, there's a book called Think Again, and I, it's a highly recommended book because it really does make you you know, as we get older in life, it, it's uncomfortable to change our minds and opinions. And what happens is, is you're like, oh, I don't know how that guy buys that five cap multifamily 300 unit building. He must be losing his, you know, he must be losing his money or, you know, I don't know why those guys would ever do storage. I don't use storage. Why, why, why would it make any sense to use storage? You, you have these kind of preconceived and planted notions about stuff. And you've really just got to think again, you've got to look at the different perspective and say, and change your thinking and say, how is that guy so successful buying those high quality assets, right? Not, oh, he's going to lose his shirt and I'm going to just, you know, talk bad about him. It's how do, how do I fit it? How, how does he win in that space? And then kind of work it backwards and, and, and figure out how to, you know, how to make that, make that your, your niche, right. Or make that part of your investment thesis. So I do, I do think that's really important to come into it very open-minded. Don't make any assumptions about anything. Yeah, yeah. No, that's why we like having guys like you step in here and kind of give us that insight. And, and um, you know, what I love about that, I think I read just this week somewhere, um, or I think it may have been James, James Clear, the author of Atomic Habits. He said something to the extent of, um, I think like 80% of our thought processes are based on like our experiences. And therefore, if yeah. we've had this experience, uh, then we think this is the truth. 
but you're not factoring in that there's another 20% that is true, that is not your truth because you haven't made it your truth or you haven't accepted it as the, it to be uh, the truth. Uh, so I think having that kind of uh, 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 enlightenment and being open-minded, uh, I think is, is what you're saying. And, and I appreciate that. So I'm, I'm glad you, you, you angled it that way of, okay, go to the source. Cause that's what I believe. You know, I believe in paying for it. I believe in going, like, if there's somebody who's doing the thing, I don't believe in theoretically, I believe in going to the person who's a true practitioner. Seriously, I really do. Uh, so I hope uh, our listeners are taking notes now. Got it. You went straight to the source and you did the value add thing. Let's talk about your partner, Scott, for a second, because, you know, we look at value add and we, there's about maybe four pillars and correct me if I'm wrong. You're the expert here. There's acquisitions, there's underwriting, there's asset management, then there's investor relations, which I believe is where you come in as the investor relations guy. How did you, you know, Scott, you said it literally was, I believe in the military, like leading the troops. Like, so where does he come in, in that role uh, within the organization of, of him being a CEO? Yeah. So you really want to make sure that your CEO stays at the strategic level. Mm. You really don't want a, a, a tired, you know, unrested guy who's, or gal who's, who's not, you know, clear vision and focused on culture and strategy when you, when you have your CEO in the weeds doing every little thing um, in the organization, you really aren't going to have an organization that's highly functioning. And what I mean by that is somebody who cares about deeply about the employees and deeply about your company's reputation and the long-term strategic vision of the organization. That is a CEO's role. And so I think once we kind of started delineating our roles within the organization, you know, it came very clear that, that was Scott's strengths is, you know, is his leadership. That's his core competency. And my strength was, you know, I'm kind of a, I'm a high action guy. I, you know, I'm, I'm very, you know, while I am on the capital raising side of things, I'm very engaged in the relationship side of the business, whether that be creating relationships with lenders, investors, or sellers of properties. I mean, I don't really do that, the, any acquisitions anymore, but that's really kind of uh, been the division of labor. We also have a two, couple other people on our executive team, uh, Ben Lapidus, our CFO, and then Jackie Gibson, our director of asset management, and Aaron Saunders, our director of construction now. And I think really just delineating those roles and aligning the right person to the position, I think is really important. Uh, to getting that, you know, kind of out of the ground and started. Well, love it. Love it. So yeah, you definitely got to know the strengths. Let, let me ask you, uh, Ryan, as far as, you know, the vision and, and because uh, I'm very interested in how you've been able to, you know, you were talking about this offline of, you know, your growth. Um, how, who's deciding what comes into the portfolio next? Like, how did we get to 75, 25, or maybe not 50, 50, you know, just within, sure. the, within the time period. I'm very curious, how does that happen? Yeah, so you want to, you know, once you kind of have a better defined criteria, it's much easier to say no. And it's great when you figure out exactly what you want to say no to and what, you, and what makes sense and what you can say yes to. And man, it's a lot easier. So, you know, when you're kind of looking for any deal under the sun, it's really easy to just like analysis paralysis everything you look at. 
right? Because you're like, well, I guess we can make that work. And, you know, but now as soon as a deal comes in, we know right away if it's, we pretty much know right away if it's going to fit or not in our portfolio. Uh, we have a very specific uh, vision. We have it outlined in our strategic plan on what we're on the type of assets that we're looking for. And I think really for us was, you know, we had the opportunity to get into storage and, you know, we don't want a property that's too small that we have to spend just as much time managing and not get the, uh, you know, the juice out of it that we'd like. Mm-hmm. We also don't. Scalability, right? Yeah, scale, scalability. We like to see the revenue that justifies uh, potentially a manager at the, at the storefront. We like to see value add potential through expansion. We like to see value add potential through uh, improving operations. And we just, we know, you know, if it's that 40 to 60,000 square foot facility or larger that we know it fits right within um, our, our constraints. On the underwriting side, obviously we've built a, our own homebrew, um, you know, investor or uh, underwriting file um, that runs a lot of different scenarios for us that we can underwrite, make sure the deal makes sense. But, you know, that's, that's kind of, you kind of define your criteria um, over time and you, and it makes it easy to say no. One thing that we did was, cause you do want to say no, we look at about 1300 deals a year and we do. Um, you know, we issue probably anywhere between 20 to 25 LOIs. And then, um, you know, from there we go under contract and, you know, we may, may only close 10 to 20 transactions a year. So we're looking at a lot of things and saying no to a lot of things. And I think that's where people get caught up is they, they want to say, yes, they want to make things work because it's in their backyard or they get emotionally attached to it. You want to figure out, you want to figure out how you can say no faster and that will get you much further along. You know, on our website, we actually break down the markets that we look in for storage. There's only 55 self-storage, 55,000 self-storage facilities in the United States. To put that in perspective, there's probably like 55,000 multifamily buildings in one city alone. So we have to look really far and wide to get our deal flow. But we don't want to look in markets that we can't complete business plans in. For example, Mm. A lot of the middle of the country markets where there's no growth, there's no population, there's low income, and the rental rates aren't strong, we can't build there because we can't justify the new construction cost. So we just don't look in those markets. Mm -hmm. So we mapped out the 150 markets that we look in. We put that on our website and say, these are the markets that have the best population growth, job growth, income level growth, rental rates, uh, currently saturation. And so when a deal comes in and let's say not to pick on Ohio, but I'm from Michigan, so I can pick on Ohio a little bit, you know, unless you're, unless the deal's in Columbus, we're not interested in Cleveland. It's, it's declining population. We're not interested um, in other areas of Ohio because population's going down. Same thing with Michigan, same thing with Illinois, Mm. same thing with New England. You know, we don't play in those markets because we don't like where the population trends are going, but markets like... Yeah, go so, ahead. Ryan, I, I want to piggyback because you're dropping so many gems and I want to make sure I, I capture some of these. Yeah, I just want to piggyback on that point real quick. Trends, you use the word trend. How dynamic is this criteria? Because as you can imagine, in the last year or two years, there's been a lot of different trends happening with, you know, how individuals have gone virtual. And again, we talk about commercial. Commercial is an umbrella in itself. What kind of commercial? We're talking about office or we're talking, right? There's been a lot of trends. People from the West going to the South, avoiding taxes. How dynamic is this this criteria? How often do we look at it? Is it quarterly? Is it 
you have the analysis, the reports coming out to just shift like, or is it pretty much, nope, we're sticking by the guns. This is what we do because we're playing again, the five year, 10 year game. So I'm, I'm curious as to how that kind of just, just sits and, and, and lands in, in, in your books. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the high growth states are, are pretty much going to be around and, and that trend isn't really changing all mm-hmm. that frequently. Yeah. The rents, the market rents and markets are, are, they are what they are and they're, they've only kind of risen in the higher growth markets. So, you know, it's not really changing per se. Uh, it's not that dynamic. Our philosophy has been that there's a flight to the suburbs and that has really played out in COVID like it's accelerated in COVID. So we don't look in the primary markets and some people, you know, with multifamily, I invest in multifamily syndications that are in primary markets. I like that nice class B property in Dallas or Atlanta. You know, I I think that's a really smart move, but for storage, you try to play in the primary markets, best of luck, because you're dealing with extra space. You're dealing with cube smart life storage all the REITs that have way more money than any of one of our syndication companies do and the smarts to outbeat you in marketing and they will cut rates on you in a heart in a, you know, heartbeat. Ooh, so interesting. very, very hard to, to compete in some of these higher growth or in these uh, urban markets where the saturation of higher level um, operators. Now, that being said, we're in uh, tertiary secondary markets. And when I say tertiary, that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Right. Could you we're, define that? We're within more? one hour of a primary airport. So Hmm. think of Dallas, Fort Worth, we're within an hour of DFW airport. So, you know, we're not in the middle of New Mexico, right? We're not in the middle of nowhere. So, um, you know, some of our properties, you know, might be within two hours of a, of a primary airport, but generally they're within an hour of a driving, you know, of an airport. So we have a property we just picked up that's performing exceptionally well, just South of the Atlanta airport. So 30 minutes South, a tertiary market, but it's a, um, a market where there's no REIT competition. We don't have to deal with extra space or cube smart or life storage. And we're recipients of the high growth that's pushing down into that market. We're seeing right. 2% plus year over year growth in the markets that we're in. And we're seeing rental rates go up and we're seeing a lack of competition. That's where we win. And we know that that's been, our, that's been kind of our thesis for the past five years in storage. And it's really played out. And now that the urban markets are getting sort of compressed with lots of competition, the REITs are starting to go, hey, where can we get yield? And so they're starting to push out into the secondary and tertiary markets, uh, which is where, right where we want to be. Wow, wow. We'll be right back. Is there, is there a reason why, you know, again, call it competition or not, but REITs are going strictly for primary? Why aren't they playing in the same uh, backyard that you're in? I think that's just kind of where they started their strategy. You know, that's where the population density is. That's where they had, um, you know, deal flow. And, you know, self-storage is a pretty young asset class. And it's only recently become more institutionalized and commonplace, kind of like, you know, part of the food group, so to speak. And it's, uh, you know, and, and I think, you know, going to the tertiary markets, you know, it just, it's always been kind of mom and pop. And they can place a lot more capital in an urban market versus a tertiary market. They don't want to go buy a $3 million tiny property, you know, 40, you know, 40 minutes South of Atlanta, right. Yeah. What they, what they'd rather do is buy a $40 million property in downtown Atlanta because they want to write the big checks. They need to move the needle on their capital placement. So that's, that's part of the reason why. Interesting. So you guys recently got into self-storage if I'm correct. Is that right? 
Yeah, we yeah we we're young. We're young in the space. Yeah. We started in 2016 in storage, so wow. about five years. Yeah. So, uh, what were you? Um, what made you the push? Being seven five percent value add. What was the big push? I know there's some obvious ones, but maybe some that you didn't even factor in. And now you're playing a game. And you're like, wow, where were we this whole time? Yeah. So I think our development core competency on our team. So Scott and I are real estate developers at heart. Yeah. And so we know how to do some of the most challenging roundup development projects. I'll give you a great example. You're building these self-storages, by the way, or you're, oh, wow. Interesting. So you're not, uh, is it more building or acquisitions as as well? Uh, It's about 75% acquisition and about 25% building. No kidding. And then this is specifically for self-storages. Yes. Interesting. Okay. Which, why, why do you like, is there one that you like over the other? I mean, you know, the, the, uh, both offer different things. Right. So when you buy an existing property, you have that feel good instant cash flow. When you build one from the ground up, you get rich. Okay. <laughs> hold on. So, you know, I mean, there's the re- a lot of equity in a new one. I mean, you're, yeah, you won't, you won't feel good on the cash flow. You might not get that seven or 8% coupon right away, but the equity build and a ground up development is substantial. Can you, can you go into detail on that? Why, why is that? Like, and can you describe the difference? Cause sure. We're so thinking, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So I'll give, I'll give you some numbers on a property that we built in Washington, uh, just South of Seattle. Uh, you know, we bought the land for 550,000. It was a raw land development and it was riddled with wetlands. So we had an acre of wetlands. We had to go through the Army Corps of Engineers, get a, get a permit. We had to go through the Department of Ecology. We had to go through the tribes. We had to jump through a lot of hoops to make that very unvaluable land entitled for storage. And entitled just means that you've been granted permission to build a type of business on that property. So meaning that, okay, now we've moved the wetlands, we've done the easements, we've got a conditional use permit on the property. We've positioned that property so that we can get approved to get storage on the property. Right. Let me stop that, you. Let me stop you for a second, right? Yeah. Why? Why? And I mean, and this is where I'm going, right? Uh, development. We know you have to go through these hoops. How do you know? And why are you going through these hoops when you could just do a value add? I know you said it'll get you rich, but is is like how do you know that it's worth going sure. through that? Yeah, so you study the market. You say, okay, um, I can get $25 a month rents in this market and the, every, com- every competition is full. So I can go pay a, a three cap or a four cap for one of those existing properties. And maybe I might uh, improve something, but you're not gonna make any improvements really. I mean, if it's full and leased up, there's really no value to add. If I can take a half a million dollar piece of property, I can pro forma like what my unit mix will be, you know, I can do my projections and say, okay, if I lay out the site this way, I can have this many units. It's going to make this much income. This is my typical expenses. This is what this thing is going to produce in revenue. I apply a cap rate, a conservative cap rate to that. And I'm looking at a $35 million facility. And then I say, okay, what, what do I need to get it to that valuation? And I start working in the construction costs and saying, you know, I'm looking at a 13 to $14 million total project cost on something that's worth over $30 million. Mm-hmm. So what do I have to do to get there? Because now I'm going to have $15 million plus in equity in this project when it's completed. Literally when it's completed. Yes. 
And this is based on the supply and demand. Yes. Wow. And so, and you know, it took us five years to, t- to entitle permit and build. Oh my but once gosh. it's done, it's, I mean, it's, <laughs> that's a yeah, whole different ball game. Five years, five years. Yep. And the harder it is to do it. I mean, there's some markets where we've gone in and built in the year, right? There's some markets that, you know, you don't even need a permit for, right? There's different areas, right? But then you're dealing with different barriers to entry, right? If you're, right. if it's very difficult to build, then it's very difficult to build and you won't have competition. Right. And then, and you heard my yeah. reaction, right? That's probably yeah. going to be most of your competition reaction. Five years. I think the biggest challenge that I'm thinking is I'm very curious is obviously you, you have so many pillars. We could be here all day as far as, you know, from a financing perspective, is that, do you tap into, is there incentives, incentives from the government? Is there write-offs? Is it, what, what, what can, how do you raise capital and then have investors wait five years? Is that all yeah, so outlined? We, yeah. yeah, we, it's all outlined and it's a 10 year, 10 year projection. And don't get me wrong. We've got other asset class, you know, we've got other acquisitions for our investors that would cash flow day one. Right. But on this one, the return is much greater because it's riskier. It takes longer and it's grounded development. So you can expect returns to be much higher. But for this one, we got our investors on board with a 10 year hold. And, um, you know, we did most of our studies and development before we brought out our investors. But our investors were along for that ride. And, you know, they enjoyed it because we communicate every month and we let investors know exactly what's going on and exactly where we stand on the project. And I think if you're going to be a developer with syndicated equity, you really need to have a good communication strategy because yeah, there's nothing happening at the property, which is exactly why you need to communicate more. You need to let them know what you've done and what you're planning to do over the next 30 days. And, you know, I think investors really appreciate when it's built and, you know, all the effort that you've gone through and all the equity that they've built in the project. So um, yeah, it's, you, you bring on the investors at the appropriate time, you know, we're building another one in Portland. That one was also five years in permitting, but we didn't bring the investors on until basically the week that we closed on the property. And we're going to start construction on that this week. So it's kind of one of those things where you've really got to, you, you kind of balance kind of where you are in the process with the capital that you need. And you are upfront with your investors that, Hey, this is still not entitled. You know, a lot of investors don't understand that. It may be like permit ready or shovel ready, but that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So <laughs> it's another, you want to make sure you really understand yeah. what shovel ready means. Cause I've never met anybody who has the same definition of shovel ready that I do other than people on my team. What does it mean um, for you? It means that I can go out there today and start building something right now. And I have full permits to do that. So I have my mechanical, electrical, no deferred submittals. I have my building permit. I have my site plan approval. I have my zoning and my entitlement. I've got everything. I've got anything that I need from the state. I can go out there right now and start pushing dirt around and nobody would come out there and red tape. And so, you know, I've heard, you know, oh, it's shovel ready. And it's like, you don't even have building permits. You don't even have, you know, you don't even have site plan approval. It's, you know, yeah, it's zoned correctly and you have matter of right, but there's a whole bunch of steps in between wow. matter of right and, and shovel on the ground. Yeah. So I've got to ask you this, cause this is going to help, I think, understand for our investors and our community who may want to invest with someone like you, you know, considering you have other self storages that are cash flowing value add, a project like this, a new development like this, you, you correct me if I'm wrong, you couldn't necessarily start off with this because then it would mean that, hey, 
you're not going to get a payout for the next five years. Is this, are you floating? Is it, are you treating this like a fund where you're saying, Hey, you've part of the, you know, your investment is going to go towards this new development. Like, how are you, how does that work behind the scenes for a project like this? Or is it expected that, Hey, you're going to start getting, receiving a payout year six. Like, can you help us maybe understand if I'm investing with you, what that would look like uh, as far as setting expectations? Yeah, we set the expectation very clearly. You could lose all of your money. Mm -hmm. You could be expected to have a capital call and there's no distributions on a ground up development. If, if you don't want to do the project, then, then do another project, right. um, but don't do that one. And, and, you know, I actually, it's funny that you mentioned that because I had an investor that ground up development was the first project we ever did in self-storage. So, <laughs> you, guys are, you guys have some balls. <laughs> yeah. Good for you. That's amazing. <laughs> Oh my so, gosh. And I, and I had an investor write me and said, say, are you sure this is going to take, you know, five years? And, and are you sure that my payments are going to be exactly what you proposed? Because I don't really want to do this investment. And I wrote back and I said, I'm not sure of any of this. And anybody who tells you that they are, are is lying. Because not one of these projects in the history of real estate has gone exactly on schedule and on plan because there's just absolutely no way to do that. And, you know, and that's what a PPM is for. A PPM is going to tell you all of your risk factors. It's going to tell you all the things that could go wrong with your investment. And we don't, we're very upfront with people, you know, you know, the people in that, you know, the investors in that project are going to be very well rewarded. And it was funny because we actually threw an investor dinner appreciation at that facility and a lot of investors that weren't on that project, you know, saw the big, beautiful facility that we constructed at dinner and said, I want to do stuff like this. And it's interesting because a lot of people don't really like, you know, waiting and seeing it when it's a, when it's a forest, you know, and it's, it's hard to see the project through it, you know. Um, but once it's built and it's operating and the equities uh, play, it's, it's some of the highest, our, our most profitable, profitable deals have been development. And I, I, you know, I'm not trying to convince people to do de development, but I will just say that you know, I love cash flow and everybody harps on cash flow. I think cash flow is amazing. It can help you do many things. But for me as an as a IRA investor in some projects, I don't really care about cash flow because I'm not withdrawing my retirement. What I care about is getting the absolute highest multiple, the highest return over the shortest period of time possible, right? And development provides that. Now, if I'm if I'm retired and I'm investing, you know, fifty thousand or a hundred thousand into a syndication, and I'm relying on that income every month that that syndicated equity provides, then I probably wouldn't do it of development, mm. right? So it, it's different. It's different things. It's different buckets of money that make the most sense. But any investor, I would encourage the thought process of, if you don't need that $333 a month of cash flow that a typical value add investment might clip, you know, clip, then, then you should be seeking things that have potentially the highest, the highest reward. Can you, can you, and which is development? I'm sorry to cut you off. Uh, yeah. Can you define for our listeners what that would look like? Is it kind of exit strategy or is it more like, Oh, after six years, after five years, this is now you're going to get three X to 333. We got, can you give some context? Yes. Usually in year five, you refinance hundred percent of your capital mm. because now you've built up the property and you've uh, created a lot of value and then you refinance. So a lot of the investor equity comes back and money on top of that additional proceeds 
And then you cash flow infinity because now you've got all your money out of the deal and you're just collecting a coupon every month and you've got all your money back at five years. And now you can take that other money and go do something else that maybe cash flows or maybe do another development. Um, and then typically we would sell at some point where there'd be additional profit on top of that. So now, now, um, now I'm curious, Ryan, when you said you refine and you, you all pay out all your investors and then you have that you were talking about on your behalf on Spartan, now you have the ability to do what you want with the rest, right? Yep. That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. And they still own the project at just the same as they did before the refinance. Um, that's how our waterfalls are typically structured. So oh, it is wonderful. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Fascinating. I've never, I mean, this is why I love, love this, you know, being yeah. able to have someone like you step in and kind of give us some new insights of self-storage, new development. There are so many experiments within experiments within the lab. <laughs> I got to ask you, I was thinking about this the entire time I was talking with you. Would you change if you're, if you're listening to this, I have a, um, you know, a little backboard poster here that says experiment, fail, learn, repeat. I have a feeling Ryan, you would, you would amend that. To, to, to based on how we, we, we had the conversation, what would you change? I see that. Yeah, on I, that see board? Your, I see your poster. Uh, I definitely would fail fast. Um, experiment, fail, learn, repeat. Do you hmm. agree with that? I mean, I don't disagree with it. I think it's good. Experiment, fail, learn, repeat. Let me think. I feel like you would change it to educate or something because you've been big on the education for effective action. Yeah, I think learn. I mean, learn. I would probably go up to the top. Um, learn, experiment, fail, repeat. Yeah. That's probably what I would do. Yeah. So I heard. Because if so, you're, yeah. I mean, I, you know, the, the one thing I loved about flying was the first lesson you actually fly the airplane, and <laughs> I, I like, you know, there's another there's another instructor there with you, but yeah, you know, it's it's kind of fun. Like, see, so show up, and it's like, yeah, day one, you're flying the airplane. I like that about real estate. You know, you're kind of, yeah, you kind of learn and you're doing it kind of at the same time sometimes. Um, I like that. It's kind of gives you a nice, um, nice thing, but you know, I really, I mean, I think, I think you need to, you know, at least the, the, the approach that we took, I, I think, you know, I know that Kiyosaki gives you the, the quadrant, right. The, mm -hmm. you know, the E you're an employee and you go change, exchange your time for your money and you're self-employed where you, you know, are essentially wearing all the hats and you're trying to do everything, or you're an investor or a business owner, and you want to be in the business owner category. I think a lot of investors hear that and they think they're business owners because they're doing deals, but they're actually not building any businesses. They're just, they're doing a deal and they might have a VA or two or some employees, but I really think that people, there's like almost like a subset of that B that people don't really understand that you're not building a company, you're just doing deals. And that's great because it will give you passive income. But I think the approach that we've taken is really focusing on the business. I mean, we've put everything behind hiring more people, scaling and reading books like Scaling Up are you know, great, great additions. And I think that you know, within you know, your poster, getting back to your poster, that learn, experiment, fail, repeat, I think that's like great values to live by or great kind of a, a, a creed to live by, you know, when you're running a company and you're encouraging your investors or your employees to fail. Like we love failure at our company. I mean, we've, we've, our employees make mistakes all the time and that, you know, they're always like waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like we're going to fire them or something. And it's like, 
yeah, we, you know, we, we talked to him about it, but you know, it's like, now you're very valuable to us because you failed, yeah. you know? And, um, you know, I just think, I just think thinking, you know, a lot of investors, they look, or a lot of business owners in real estate, they, they, they know how to do deals really, really well. And then all of a sudden they build a company and they have no idea what to do with the people that they hired. Yeah. And it's a thing. And they're like, okay, now I have to be a leader, which has nothing to do with transacting in real estate. Yeah. And they're like, now I've got to learn how to do that. And it's like a whole different shift. And it's been, it's been really hard for me, to be honest. And we actually got a business coach that helps us do that. Yeah. Like, because I'm kind of like, I'm a hands-on, you know, I want to tinker with everything. And I got to give credit to Scott, our CEO. He is the, he is the, he doesn't like that. He likes to stay in the leadership level. And I'm, I'm very much appreciative of, of that. I think I was watching like a little thing on Gary V the other day, Gary Vandertech, you know, he does, yeah, I mean, great, great, you know, words of advice. And he's like, it's not about algorithms. It's not about, you know, spreadsheets and, and money and you know, he's like, it's about people. And, you know, if you can't figure out how to like be a leader of people, then you need to find somebody who can be, and, you, and hopefully you can trust that person. And I'm just, I'm grateful that I've found that person to kind of latch onto um, because it's, it's a really important thing to, you know, to make that shift when you're really going from deal maker guy to really having a company and taking yourself completely out of it. And I'm not talking about going on a beach and sitting around and letting everybody do the work for you. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about leading an organization with hundreds of employees or, you know, even dozens of employees and really growing something that can self-sustain. Man, I love that. The reason I, I'm getting goosebumps is because that's a, that's exactly you're speaking to our core, you're speaking to me. You know, I'm a business owner first, then a real estate investor. I have a team over 15, and I believe success is a system, right? And and I believe if you're building a system into your business rather than building a business where you have the system, and then the system is with people who need to execute that system, then making sure you're taking care of the people, then you have a business that's headed in the right direction. So. Uh, you know, you, you literally tied the knot on this one. I, you know, I wish we could even spend more time. I, I want to be so respectful of your time. I got to ask you one last question. You're such a resourceful guy. You're educating. You're currently at a conference and you're growing so quickly, which again says a lot about you and your organization. Um, you know, what is, you know, a key takeaway that you're thinking, man, 10 years ago, I mean, you guys did a lot of things, right? But if there was something that you were to look at be like, mm, now that I know this, oof, Ruben, if I only knew. Is there something that sticks out or jumps out at you? Yeah, the, you know, um, human capital, hiring mm. great people. And, you know, I was afraid to hire people, you know, the, for lots of reasons. You know, I didn't know how to do payroll. It's easy. You do ADP. Yeah. Right? I, I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to compensate people. Um, so learning about that, um, you know, like, like what, what goes into a compensation package. Um, you know, and then I just, I was afraid, I was afraid to take my money and hire somebody else, you know? And I think if I could go, if I, if this whole thing blew up in my face and I had to start all over again, I would, I would arrange capital not to buy deals. I'd arrange capital to build a workforce and a company and do everything in light speed. If you, it's what's interesting about our strategic plan. If you look at our strategic plan, it was written in 2019 for the years 2020 to 2022. And it was written to have $250 million of self-storage assets 
by the end of 2022. So by the end of next year, right? We have 400 million today. So we are 150 million ahead of where we thought we'd be at the end of next year. And what's the one thing when we wrote the strategic plan in 2019, what's the one thing we didn't account for? People, hiring people. We didn't think we'd have 60 people helping us do this, right? Or 70 people. We were just the five of us thinking, what, what can the five of us accomplish? Not understanding that we were going to hire three accountants, three people, investor relations, an entire construction staff, an entire property management staff, an entire acquisitions team. When you realize that like you can go so much farther faster and create so much more equity and value for yourself and for your organization with people, I would just be like, Ryan, like hire people, like build your company, go get an office, spend the money on an office, go get an office, put the people in the office and start building your company. You know, it's, I got to give credit to Scott, you know, give him, giving him props a few times on this thing. Um, you know, he was always like this remote work stuff. It just doesn't, I mean, it, it can work. Yeah. No, you're the second person I've heard say this this week. But man, the second we got that office, boom, it was like, it, it was crazy. So we got a 1500 square foot office in Golden, outgrew it in four months. Right. So we were like, well, we got to figure out, I mean, our growth was exponential. And then we got another office. Thank God it was just right down the street. And we're like, it was like, it's like 5,000 square feet or something like that. And we're like, oh, good. We'll, we'll have this place forever. We're about to outgrow it again. <laughs> so, I mean, and now we have a Seattle office. So if the Seattle office was consolidated into the golden office, um, we would have, we would be out of space, um, quite frankly. And the Seattle office is almost out of space. I've got about a 1500 square foot office in Seattle. And so, you know, and it's just, and you know, I get it. Like some people are like, you know, well, I just, I'm more efficient at home and I can just get my work done. And the problem is, and like when you're raising capital from investors as a, you can't, you know, you can do it over email and et cetera, but the face-to-face interactions in the office are what drive big ideas. You know, when you run it, you know, Hey man, what do you think about this? You know, I, I was just thinking about this and what do you think about it? And then it turns into this conversation that you would have never had because you were sitting at your desk at home. Right. And like you would have had to schedule a meeting and figure out when you could meet. And then all of a sudden the idea is gone. Wow. Right. And you just can't replace that interaction. It's just, it's, and that's where big ideas come. So we give our, our workers the hybrid, the hybrid experience they can do um, our employees. Mondays and Fridays, hybrid, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in the office. Because I get it. I get there's a lot of stuff to do and you just want to go home and just knock it all out and enjoy the weekend, right? So, um, you know, so we, we started doing that before COVID was even a thing. So, oh, wow. Good for you. Yeah. Man, so good. <laughs> you talk about human capital before you drop. Tell us one of your favorite, you know, books that you got sitting on your shelf with tons of human capital in there of old whether it's theoretical guidance, mindset, anything that, that, that kind of resonates with you right now. Uh, Henry Ford's autobiography, uh, mm. my life, my work. Um, I, I think the guy was, what's that? Why am I surprised? Henry Ford. He was way ahead of his time. So, I mean, he literally invented the 40 hour work week. Like it used to be a hundred hour work week before there was labor unions and laws and literally encouraged, um, you know, people to take, to earn a good living and, and take the time and go spend it with their families. And, you know, you read that book, it's a really good read. It's, it's, it's a little archaic. It's a little bit, 
um, you know, 1930s, 1940s. But one, one um, more time for, for our listeners. I think it's Henry Ford, My Life, My Work. My Life, My Work. Definitely. My Life and My Work or something like We'll include like it that. in the show notes. We'll have a link in there. Yeah, that's a good one. I, I was surprised when I read. I was like, oh, I'll give this a shot. Yeah, it's a little dry, but that's okay. <laughs> Listen, uh, Ryan, you over-delivered, and, and I wouldn't expect anything less. Uh, you know, I want to give the audience a chance to connect with you. I know you talked about the core strategic plan. Uh, you talked about another resource. Where can we find these resources? Because we are hooked. We are sold. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's at Spartan-Investors.com. So Spartan-Investors.com is our website. Of course, Spartans. I'm, I'm sure Scott had something to do with that. <laughs> Michigan State grad. Oh, so, of course. Okay, that that yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that and the and the army and that and that obviously the military and yeah, we tried to drop the name after the first year and it, everybody's like, no, we just know you as Spartan. You're gonna keep that name. So it's oh, it's really stuck with us. So it's badass and obviously those core values can show. Hey, listen, Ryan, this it was such a pleasure you coming in the lab, uh, teaching us a lot uh, that you have. I know we could have gone for another hour or even yeah. more, which was with the experience that you have. So we're, we're super honored to have you step in the lab and share that with our listeners. Uh, we, uh, we can't wait to see your growth. I'm going to be keeping tabs on you guys and we're rooting for you all the way. So if you got any predictions that you want to make, make them now be like, I remember Ryan told me that what's next. What is, what is the end goal for you guys? I mean, you're, you're young, you're, you, you, you guys are growing so rapidly. What, what's a projection that you want to make? And we'll say that we heard it here first. We want to be a billion under management by the end of 2022. Wow. Fascinating. That is going to storage assets. Yeah. That is amazing. Well, I, I'm sure, and I'm not sure, I'm positive that you guys will be, be there and we'll be rooting for you. And once you do, we'll definitely make sure we have you back in the lab so you can share. I love uh, it. Get yeah, more I'd gems, love to right? come back. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate the time. Thank you so much. And just like that, we are out. If you're a real estate professional, a real estate agent, a real estate investor, a lender, a multifamily syndicator, a contractor, you name it and you're looking to grow your online presence, but you have no idea how to get started or simply don't have the time, at Invested Talent, we help real estate professionals extend their current business to social media. Why is this important? Without this, you wouldn't be listening to this show and your own host, Ruben Kanya, and his team would not have done deals they've done today. As a matter of fact, social media has helped us keep this show together, which now exceeds a billion dollars worth of real estate from our guests collectively that's right our reputation opportunities partnerships and most importantly real estate transactions were started directly from social media if you're a real estate professional and you lack an existence on a media platform invested talent can help simply go to investedtalent.com forward slash social media and make sure you click the get in touch button to get in touch with our team again that's investedtalent.com forward slash social media and get in touch with our team you focus on being the brand and we'll help you build it now if you know anything about the lab you know that we like to give practical advice so if you feel that this podcast was of any value to you please be sure to leave us a review on iTunes by going directly to the podcast app. From the show's page, scroll all the way down and leave us a review. If you're watching this on YouTube, please subscribe by clicking the subscribe button and leave us a comment. Lastly, and most importantly, 
share this episode with a friend you feel will benefit this episode the most. Remember, there's a you and I in build. Let's build, y'all.